Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes, and their solutions are designed to affordably scale with businesses as they grow. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do, but getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations are endlessly complicated. Avalara keeps track of how thousands upon thousands of products are taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions, and that's just in the United States. And with more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash tax notes. That's avalara.com slash tax notes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, checking in with the advocate. Erin Collins became the third national taxpayer advocate in March of 2020, following her predecessor, Nina Olson's 18-year run in the role. Collins began her tenure right as the COVID-19 pandemic shut down the United States, forcing the IRS and the Taxpayer Advocate Service to grapple with a number of unprecedented challenges. Tax Notes reporter William Hoffman spoke with her about the last year and a half and what the future could bring. Bill, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, David. Nice to be back. Now, before we get to your interview, could you give us some background on Erin Collins? Well, going back to her time as the IRS's Industry Council for Savings and Loan, during the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, Erin Collins has 35 years experience in tax law, David. She worked 15 years at the IRS Office of Chief Counsel and then 20 years in private practice at KPMG. She also received the Chief Counsel's highest honor, the National Litigation Award, in both 1995 and 1997. Before joining the Taxpayer Advocate Service, Ms. Collins also volunteered in a nonprofit organization, Step Up, helping girls in disadvantaged communities become college-bound, career-focused, professional women. All right, and could you give us a rundown of what you talked about? Well, Ms. Collins teased some IRS announcements she anticipates will be made soon on protections for taxpayers left in limbo by the recent departure of two private tax debt collection companies from the tax agency's program and their replacement with a new collector. The IRS, according to Ms. Collins, is planning procedures whereby as many as 17,000 taxpayers formerly in private collection could roll over into installment agreements with minimal or no further financial disclosures. Apparently these changes and others are still under discussion, David, so we may have broken a little news here. The National Taxpayer Advocate explained hers and the IRS's reasoning behind the tax agency's recent decision to reform its FAQ process, but also why reform was necessary in the first place. Ms. Collins also gave a peek at her annual report to Congress, usually sent right after New Year's. But I don't want to get a hold of her own comments, David. Well, all right. Now, before we get started, I should note that we're recording this remotely, so please excuse any sound issues you may hear. And with that, let's go to the interview. Welcome, National Taxpayer Advocate Erin Collins to Tax Notes Talk. Good afternoon or good morning, Bill, depending on where you're listening from. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to participate today. I always appreciate the opportunity to get key information out to taxpayers and practitioners. Well, thank you for joining us. 
For those who are not tax professionals or intimately familiar with tax administration, tell us a little bit about the National Taxpayer Advocate position and the office that you serve in, the Taxpayer Advocate Service. Sure. So the position of the National Taxpayer Advocate and the office that I lead, which is the Taxpayer Advocate Service, they were created by Congress over 20 years ago. And it was to help taxpayers free of charge when facing financial hardship or financial difficulties, or when you're dealing with the IRS, when there's a a system or procedure failure that you can't get resolved with the IRS, we're sort of the safety net. You can come to us and we could work with you and the IRS to try and resolve the issue. All right. Thank you. There have been a number of recent news events that might impact directly or indirectly on the Taxpayer Advocate Service and the people that it serves, most particularly the recent announcement by the IRS that it won't dispute good faith reliance on FAQs, which was a major issue last year and earlier this year for many taxpayers and taxpayer advocates on their behalf uh, who were concerned about the proliferation of these FAQs through the CARES Act and other late legislation due to the pandemic. So I wanted to get your impression of what the IRS's announcement will mean for taxpayers generally and for task clients in particular. Is it a good start or is it just the beginning? I'd like to say both. Um, I what This was one of the first issues that I addressed when I first arrived back in Mar- March of uh, 2020. Um, as the IRS was issuing, uh, as a result of the CARES Act, over 500 FAQs. In my prior life, when I was in private practice, uh, there was uh, a struggle when the IRS would issue an FAQ and either they would change it and then it would just sort of, in essence, disappear off the internet um, and you weren't able to track it. And it led to problems with respect to uh, possible concerns of penalty reliance and other things. So I was working with Mike Desmond, who was the prior chief counsel, uh, on this issue and before the change of administration to having an agreement in principle. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Mike uh, left the administration. And so I've been working with the current council. Uh, um, uh, Bill and Drita have been great to work with. So anyway, fast forward to the announcement that came out. Um, when I look at it, it's sort of a, a challenge of being between a rock and a hard place. We wanna protect taxpayers. We wanna protect their rights but we also want the IRS to act quickly. So I viewed it as we have two options. One, we can provide quick guidance to taxpayers so they can have information. Or two, we can go through the somewhat lengthy process uh, that has to play out to receive the official guidance of the IRS, um, you know, following the Administrative Procedural Act, getting comments uh, with respect to that. I think we're all painfully aware that that process is long It can take one, two, three years before the guidance is actually out the door. So in a perfect world, I think we want both. We want expedited guidance that's binding on the IRS and also provides penalty protection. But in today's environment, I don't believe that's possible. So what I was advocating for is that we get the guidance out the door as quickly as possible. We have a means of tracking it. So if the IRS were to change its position, you could follow the progression. And most importantly, if you relied on it, you would have penalty protection. So if you look at the uh, proposed legends that's going to be included on the FAQ, it basically says that although you can't rely on it uh, on with respect to the substance, it does give you um, penalty protection for a reasonable cause standard relief, 
and they also included negligence or other accuracy-related penalties. So it's very broad. If you have the ability to argue reasonable cause, so it could be other penalties such as failure to file, failure to pay, other things that have a reasonable cause standard, they would agree to have penalty protection. If the, if the FAQ is right, at the end of the day, the IRS will be if the IRS changes their mind, no different than a revenue ruling or revenue uh, procedure, if they change their mind, the old one you can't rely on. So it's very similar, uh, but it is not officially the position of the IRS that you can rely on. So it's kind of splitting hairs. Would I prefer it to be the uh, official position of the IRS and have people be able to rely on and bind the agents? Absolutely. But in today's environment, I don't think that's going to happen tomorrow. Do you believe that this is the IRS's final word on the matter, or do you think that they're open to revisions, modifications in light of public criticism? They're always open to comments whether or not it's going to change. I think the real the real challenge is, and, and you know, being inside the building as well as outside the building trying to recognize the pros and cons. When you look at the approval process of FAQ, it's substantially lower than the approval process of more official guidance, a, re a regulation, a revenue ruling, revenue procedures. So the IRS is basically saying, if you want it to be binding for all purposes, we have to go through this review process. And that's the challenge here is you, the whole purpose of an FAQ is it's quick and it gets the information out there. And they tend to be issued when there's a change of law, change of position, or it's an emerging issue and they wanna get information out to taxpayers. So the more we push to make it binding, I think the slower that guidance is going to be. And I think at the end of the day, practitioners in the IRS need to determine which is more important, having the binding guidance or quick guidance. Because in a perfect world, we could have both. I just don't see IRS today in a perfect world. Which do you see it as? Which end would you tend to favor? Binding guidance or quick guidance? I took the quick I took the quick win in talking with them. I thought it was important to have, you know, I do believe that the IRS, if they say, I don't know, X is deductible, you may not be able to say it's binding on the IRS, but if that's a correct interpretation of the law, then the FAQ will be very helpful. If the IRS changes their mind and they now say X is not deductible. It wouldn't matter if it was binding or not because the IRS has changed their mind. So I look at it and try and do it as a practical consequence. If we were to look at the legal niceties and dance on the head of a pin, absolutely, I would like to have it so it's binding on, on the IRS. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Stop spending money on paper organizers that clients hate to fill out. SafeSend Organizers converts your static PDF client organizer to a digital, fillable form. When you provide a digital client organizer that is easy to complete and return, clients are more likely to provide the info you need. Automation is transforming tax engagement, and the next step is using digital, fillable client organizers. Schedule a demo at SafeSend.com to see it in action. That's SafeSend.com. There have been some recent changes in the private tax debt collection program, as you know, Ms. Collins, two collectors out and a new one coming in. We have tried to contact these collectors to find out why two of them left and why a new one was coming in. We also called the IRS. No one wants to talk to us about it. That's not entirely unexpected. 
But we are curious as to, you know, whether you can give us any insight either from inside TAS, maybe you noticed something that was going on that would indicate there were issues in the program, or maybe through the IRS or just your ordinary life and work, you had heard something that would indicate why these companies left the program. Have you heard anything that would enlighten us on those questions? I have not. Um, what I, my understanding is that these contracts by, um, by the agreements in the contract had an expiration date at the end of September. So what the IRS was doing, um, I believe they started in early summer, is they reached out um, in the competitive bid process and they selected three of the private um, collection agencies. And my understanding was they used two criteria. Um, what, one was their technical expertise and two was the basically the, the value, um, what the bid was put in for. One of the things I was surprised to learn is that there are only six eligible bidders uh, throughout the United States. So basically, they chose two that they had a prior relationship with and then one new uh, company that they brought in. I understand that there are some changes coming from IRS regarding this program. Is that correct? Yes, I was hoping that they, they would have been announced prior to sending those letters out at the end of September informing taxpayers that the contracts were expiring. Um, but we are expecting very shortly for the IRS to announce uh, what they are doing with respect to the uh, taxpayers or the cases that were sent over to collections. So my understanding, and I know it hasn't had final, final approval, but I'm pretty confident that these, what I'm going to discuss, have not changed. So there are about 17,000 taxpayers that had an agreement with one of the uh, private collection agencies where the contract had lapsed. Um, what the IRS will be doing is they're going to be sending them out a letter very shortly, uh, beginning in November, um, ex providing certain information to them, explaining that they could have an installment agreement similar to the sort of more informal agreement that they had with the private collection agency. And they would give them an opportunity to, in essence, roll over the terms in a more formal installment agreement. They would um, allow them to do it similar to a streamline where you don't have to provide financial data in order to qualify for the agreement. Um, they would have agreed that they're going to suspend any forced collection. So, for example, a levy or a seizure for those taxpayers so that they're not at risk that the IRS could go into their bank account and let's say take um, funds out. They are very concerned in looking at, um, we've been discussing social security recipients, uh, other folks like that to make sure that there's no errors or mistakes with respect to those folks. So the IRS has been looking at this. I wish they moved a little faster, um, but it should be announced shortly. Um, and for the remaining give or take million taxpayers um, who are coming over without an agreement, they're going to be in what the IRS calls currently not collectible status, which is, is good for those taxpayers. And if they meet the criteria under the revision of the code a couple of years ago, they may be required to be sent out to a collection agency and they will be notified that, of that in, in the near future. So one of the other things that we're looking at and working with the IRS is preventing this from happening again, because they just started three new contracts. Um, the contracts have already been executed, but we're talking about with counsel and collection, could they do an addendum or could we establish internal procedures with the IRS so when those also lapse or expire that we can have more of a um, 
be more proactive so that we don't put taxpayers in the situation of being a little bit in limbo during this period of time and make sure we protect taxpayers' rights and, more importantly, explain this to taxpayers. Okay. Well, hopefully that's good news coming for those people fairly soon. I wanted to ask about the taxpayer advocate services involvement in the Biden administration's racial equity executive order and find out whether or not you had submitted any comments for the IRS portion of the report or the Treasury's portion of the report and whether there was any observations or insights you might be able to give me either on what you submitted or what your thoughts are about how the executive order should be implemented at TAS. Well, not a surprise, but President Biden didn't reach out to me ahead of time. So um, we, were, we weren't involved in the early process. But, um, you know, Treasury is taking the lead on this initiative. It, it has uh, uh, different agencies within Treasury, and the, the report and the initiative are being based out of Treasury. Uh, that said, the IRS has been very active um, in discussions with Treasury, and we've been working the issue as well. But, you know, when I, when I think about the order and what it's trying to accomplish, you know, I like to think that that's what TAS has been recognized for, and we've been on the forefront of really supporting underserved communities and our low-income population pretty much since inception. This is a, is a real goal of TAS. It's kind of the fiber of our, our being, so to speak, that we work towards minimizing systemic problems or barriers that potentially uh, impact taxpayers, and again, with a real focus on low-income folks, uh, folks of color, or underserved communities. You know, last year, prior to, you know, the president even issuing this, we partnered with some outside vendors and our equity diversity inclusion group, um, where we developed uh, internal training for our folks on understanding unconscious bias. And then we've been rolling that out. Um, IRS is now also going to do something very similar. What we really want to do is, you know, just remind people, get our goal out there of really understanding how the biases um influence our relationship with others and our, even our decision-making. So again, it's something that TAS has been focused on for a period of time, you know, even without the executive order. Um, our local taxpayer advocates, uh, I would say it's kind of a grassroots outreach that we do across the country throughout the year. And we really do try and focus again, um, underserved communities. This last year, um, it's been difficult with some of our outreach. We've done a lot of it by Zoom. Um, but we've partnered with the IRS and our outside stakeholders on various events throughout the year. I think some of them that have been really advertised were the Advanced Child Tax Credit, where they had both national and local events. So usually TAS was involved in the majority of those events. Um, we also, one of the, the honors that I have as a national taxpayer advocate is we um, administer and work with low-income tax clinics. We do the grant program. Um, I'd like to say we're in 50 states. I think currently we're only in 48 states, but we're working towards that 50. Um, and so that also gives us a real, you know, kind of a, a lens into seeing how issues impact low-income folks because we do work very closely with those clinics. We also oversee um, the Taxpayer Advocate Panel, or what we call affectionately called TAP. And a lot of people aren't familiar with that group. It's in essence comprised of about 75 citizen volunteers. They spend a lot of time, so I want to thank them for all the volunteer work that they do. And what they do is they are out in, in, you know, in the real world, so to speak, and they listen to taxpayers' concerns. They try and identify issues, 
and then they make suggestions to try and improve um, IRS service or customer satisfaction. Uh, so that's, and again, we try and have that to be a real diverse group of folks. Um, and it's in, again, all 50 states. And then we also have individuals from District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and we always try and include one person who either lives or works uh, abroad so that we can make sure that we also take into account our, our citizens who are living or working abroad. So we work on a lot of initiatives. Um, we've also worked on the limited English proficiency as well as a visually impaired. I mean, you, you name the program and pretty much Taz is in it and working with the IRS. We're also involved in the multilingual uh, project that the commissioner has been really pushing. So um, Taz is, you know, I appreciate President Biden doing that, but I think tell him we're, we were ahead of him. Uh, and we, we, I think they're doing a good job on that. Another object of recent concern, although it seems to have been pushed more to the edge of the table at this point, is the possibility of a government shutdown. As I understand it, that's now been put off until December, but it's still there. And however unlikely, you know, there are written plans for what the contingency plans for what TAS is supposed to be doing. But I'm wondering if you can explain what you envision would be TAS's situation if we do have a government shutdown in early or mid-December. Yeah, unfortunately, I guess good news is that we're not a stranger to this problem. Um, it, this comes up a lot. And so we, as you pointed out, we do have procedures. It's not a pleasant situation. I prefer that we not have that. But in the event of a shutdown, what has as uh, what we are authorizing is that we would have a person for every office. Uh, we're located across the United States. Um, we have about, I think it's 78 offices uh, throughout the United States, plus our headquarters in Washington. So we're going to have someone go out and each of the offices are responsible for things like checking the mail. Um, occasionally, we actually get checks or mailed into us uh, through taxpayers to give to the IRS. And more importantly, looking for any correspondence where people have um, financial hardship that needs to be addressed um, during that period of time. So we, we really focus on that piece of it. Um, myself and my deputy and a few other the headquarters folks also will be working if we were to have a government shutdown. Uh, as I said, unfortunately, this is you know, something I hate to say, I wouldn't say every year, but it's, it's a reminder that we are on a year-by-year -year budget. And so it is something that we do have to take into account. But it is, you know, it's stressful. Um, it, it's hard for people not to be able to, you know, project what's going to happen tomorrow. So, um, but our TAS employees, I like to say, are pretty resilient and dedicated. Um, and, you know, with all the challenges that have been thrown at us for the last two years, um, we, are, we are also feeling the pressure in the sense of we have our phone lines are just high volume of calls. We've never had such historic volume of calls. Our case advocates have more open cases now than they've ever had in any other year. So it's been tough on folks. So Congress, please approve a budget so that we don't have to deal with that issue on top of everything else. We often hear about problems of attrition at the IRS losing either very experienced, frankly, older employees or just having burnout bring people down. I'm wondering if TAS has experienced that to any extent and how, if at all, you've had to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, when you think about what our folks do day in and day out, it's very difficult. I mean, they are very empathetic, giving people, and they really are trying to help taxpayers. 
But think about yourself answering those calls eight hours a day, every single day. It's hard. It is a hard job. And, you know, hopefully they understand how much taxpayers and we all appreciate them. But it is a difficult job. And I can see that after a period of time, you do get a little bit of burnout. The sad news for us is we have a very large percentage of our folks who are past retirement. So I am concerned that at some point we're going to lose a percentage of our folks. We're already down in headcount. So I am cautiously optimistic that Congress is going to give IRS additional funding. I've had discussions with the commissioner that we too will get additional funding, um, but that's really up to Congress. Um, So I really do hope and for taxpayers' sake that both the IRS and TAS gets additional budget so we can do the job that we were intended to do. One thing I'd like to find out for our listeners is what might be coming in the annual report to Congress, which, as I understand it, you folks pretty much spend the entire year preparing. Is there a most serious problem that you've identified? Is there a newest or more unusual problem that perhaps has come up as a result of the pandemic or any new or notable research that you feel taxpayer advocates service feels Congress and the taxpayers need to know about? So you're looking for a spoiler alert. Absolutely. Before they actually read the report, you want you want the, you know, what's the last chapter say? Um, we just want the first couple paragraphs. So for those who are not familiar with the annual report, by statute, um, the code requires the NTA to file a report, in essence, addressing two main areas. One is to identify the most serious um, problems impacting taxpayers, taxpayer service, taxpayer rights, and the most litigated issues. Um, during the the previous year. Um, And then what we do is also provide uh, administrative and legislative recommendations. So with the Taxpayer First Act, what Congress did was they changed Section 7803, which controls uh, and provides the guidance for what's to be in the report, from 20 most serious problems to the 10 most serious problems. And so we were looking at that, trying to figure out what does it mean to have the 10 most serious problems? So What we try to do is really look at the impact to taxpayer service, taxpayer rights, taxpayer administration in a big picture. You know, how how does this problem impact a large percentage of taxpayers? Whereas throughout the year, we internally raise and focus on systemic issues all year long, some small, some big. But for the purposes of the annual report, we're really looking at the big ones. So I don't think it's really much of a surprise that last year when I joined just when COVID was taking off, that last year's report really focused on the problems that COVID highlighted that the IRS was having. Um, So fast forward a year, you're going to see a lot of do-overs because those problems still have not been fixed. So you're going to see um, similar discussion and, and the theme that we had last year, which is really how the rights and service have been impacted dealing with this remote environment. Um, I think it's really uh, focused the need on providing taxpayers a a kind of a robust online account. Can I self-service? Can I go in for those taxpayers who have the ability? Can I go online and get all the data I need and no disrespect to my colleagues without ever calling the IRS? How can people, you know, self-serve in this environment where you can't get the IRS to answer the phone? There are many, um, conditions and problems with refiling electronic returns. Again, for those people who can file electronically, it's very frustrating if theirs gets bounced for a particular reason. A simple one is you can't attach a PDF. That return would not be able to be submitted 
electronically. So we're working with the IRS on that. Shock, surprise, telephones. Um, you know, the last two years have been very painful for taxpayers as well as practitioners and the IRS. When you look at um, the amount of calls that they receive both during filing season and throughout the year, it's at least a um, 300% increase. So I think for the year, they, they totaled about 290 million calls coming in. And the result of that is you're looking at the amount of calls that were picked up. Unfortunately, there were times throughout the year that we were in the single digits, which is unacceptable. Um, I don't think the IRS would disagree, but I also don't think anyone expected COVID and the impact of COVID. So we really need to figure out on the phone system, either have people have other alternatives or we need to change the system. So part of it's money, part of it's resources, but really it's going to be thinking outside the box. How does the IRS do a better job being more transparent, get the information out to taxpayers so they don't have to pick up that phone. So it's kind of, they're, they're very much interrelated. And, and the other thing that's going to be a little bit different this year, so I guess this is a spoiler alert. Um, again, we're supposed to identify the most, 10 most litigated issues, and then we usually talk about the various issues. So in the past, um, the report focused on opinions. So they took any opinions that were issued during the, the one-year period of time to analyze the most um, litigated issues. So as a former litigator, I'm looking at it saying, and in light of also we have more technology now, that litigation, in my opinion, starts long before the trial. And so what we're doing this year is we're actually, with the help of data analytics, we're able to focus on the filed petitions. Because if you look at the percentage of cases that are resolved, and I don't know what the current statistics are, but it's usually between 80 and 95% of tax court cases are, are settled. I want to see what's going into the litigation process. So I think you're going to see, once the numbers come out, those 10 most serious problems, which were pretty consistent in prior years, I suspect are going to change. Um, I have a kind of a, a bet with our folks internally is I think um, earned income tax credit is for the first time in a long time going to show up on that list because a lot of those cases go into tax court, but they get resolved long before a trial. So what I really wanted to do is look at the, the most um, litigated cases as in the time of petition, because I think our intent is how do we fix the system so we don't have to have litigation? So anyway, so we're taking a little bit of a different spin. Um, we haven't, the numbers were closing in as of the end of uh, October. So we haven't seen the final numbers yet, but uh, I suspect we're going to have a different approach this year. You're familiar with the fact that Taxpayer Advocate Service has been at the center of a long battle to establish a Taxpayer Bill of Rights at the IRS. There have been various maneuvers in Congress and inside the IRS, which have established you know, the basic framework. How do you feel COVID-19 pandemic has affected taxpayer rights? Do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has been worse for taxpayer rights and why or why not? Well, I think one of the challenges, you know, I think um, in the order, and I actually have it right in front of my office here, is I can look at the number one is right to be informed. Um, that's been a real challenge this past year. And again, we're going to be focusing on transparency on the most serious problem. One of the things that we have been internally pushing is uh, what we call a filing season dashboard. Um, this last filing season was incredibly difficult. Uh, the numbers 
um, again, historic highs. By the time that the filing season closed in, uh, I guess it was May, uh, we had 35 million returns still waiting processing. Well, fast forward to last week, we good news is we're down, but we're not down far enough. Um, so currently, we're looking at about 12.9 million returns still waiting to be processed in the system, plus any new ones that are going to come in by the October 15th filing. And also, what's somewhat um, unnerving is the amount of uh, amended returns that have not been processed throughout the year. So I think what we envision and what we've recommended is for the IRS throughout the filing season to have like weekly updates. So for example, if you filed a paper return on the week of February 15th, we are currently working those. So if all of a sudden you realize that your return was filed long before whatever that date is, you may realize there's a problem and you may wanna reach out and contact the IRS. If you realize you filed your return a month later, don't bother picking up the phone because the IRS is not even close to processing your return. And I think that would help provide information to taxpayers. So I really do think the right to be informed is huge. And in an environment where you can't go into an IRS building, you can't go to a taxpayer assistance center, picking up the phone, you can pick it up. Well, whether or not the IRS will answer it has been very difficult. So again, I think what COVID has really emphasized is the need to focus on those rights and to provide better service to the taxpayers. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. The Graduate Tax Program at the UC Irvine School of Law is the number one ranked graduate tax program on the West Coast and number five ranked program nationally. It offers a unique curriculum that gives students a chance to develop both deep knowledge and the practical skills needed to practice law both here in the U.S. and around the world. It's a one-year, full-time program held at the UC Irvine campus. Applications are open now. The deadline to apply for non-U.S. applicants is February 1, 2022. U.S. and U.S.-based international applicants must apply by July 1, 2022. To apply today, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law dot uci dot edu slash grad tax. We'd also like to find out if TAS is doing anything or knows anything about what the IRS is doing in planning for the 2022 filing season. Besides the fact that the budget is still in the air, possibility of a government shutdown, COVID pandemic, economic disruption, am I missing anything? You're, you're, you're painting a very cheery picture. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Well, it does seem like a lot of work to prepare for, but what I'm wondering is whether you think the IRS is preparing in ways that anticipate some of the problems that tax practitioners and taxpayers have been worried about. I'm thinking particularly about the advanced child tax credit payments, the recipients of letter 6419, which is basically a summary of what the recipient got from the advanced child tax credit, and it's supposed to be used on their returns. And it seems like a very simple, potentially effective prophylactic device to prevent a lot of problems in the filing season. I'm wondering whether in that particular case, you think that's a sensible, good idea, or whether it falls short of the mark for some reason. And then broader than that, I'm just wondering if there's anything that TAS or IRS that you know of is doing to prepare for complications 
on the ACTC or unemployment tax reconciliation or any of the other issues that are going to come up in 2022 that we can see clearly, but maybe, you know, need some preparation for. Yeah, I, I am concerned about the next filing season. Um, what a lot of people don't know is the IRS actually starts preparing for the next filing season as soon as the first one closes. So we have uh, weekly calls that myself and others from TAS participate, um, and it's the entire IRS with respect to the filing season. So there are updates, discussions, uh, anticipated problems. So one of the issues that came up last year um, that caused a lot of challenges was the reconciliation of the stimulus payments. So taxpayers um, for the first stimulus or second stimulus payment, if they did not receive it, had the opportunity to, in essence, true it up on their tax return, um, and it was called the recovery rebate credit, and you would put it there. Um, there were over, and I don't know the actual number, but it's over 11 million taxpayer returns were identified as being inconsistent with IRS records. The challenge was that since the legislation, um, some of the legislation passed at the end of December, IRS was not able to manually or program their computers. So every one of those needed manual review. And think about that number, 11 million. That's a lot of tax returns to go through with limited resources. So what that resulted in was the IRS sending out um, uh, over 11 million, what they call math error notices, but basically it just says, we're adjusting your tax return and this is why. Um, we've expressed concerns that those letters could be a lot more um, self-explanatory to tell a taxpayer exactly what it is. They're somewhat confusing. But we also identified um, around March, April timeframe was over 5 million of those did not include the rights that the taxpayers have to ask the IRS to basically undo the correction. Um, we work with the IRS. Uh, it took a little bit of time. They've agreed to reissue those letters to start the new, it's a 60-day window that the statute provides that you can come in and ask the IRS to undo it. Um, and those have just started going out the end of September, October, which gives taxpayers another window. But the way that impacts the current is I'm concerned about, as you said, the child tax credit. Uh, these are monthly payments. Some taxpayers, it's the same, let's say, 250 300 every month. Other taxpayers, they've gone in and adjusted their adjusted gross income or other things, so the amount has gone up or down. What the IRS is doing differently this year, which I hope will have a, a, a good impact on the, the reconciliation piece of it, is they're sending out, as you indicated, the Form 6419, which I, I think it will be public shortly. I have seen it and commented on it. They're trying to make it look more like a W-2 or 1099 form, so hopefully people won't throw it in the garbage. And what it's going to show is the total amount of credit or uh, the advance credit that you received in one box, and it's also going to talk about the number of qualifying children they use to determine your credit, so that when you go to prepare your return, hopefully you can, don't throw out this piece of paper, you can compare it and then use that for purposes of reconciliation. Should your amount go up, should it go down, and what the difference is. The other thing the IRS has done, um, which we talked a lot about, was the portal that they have for the child tax credit. It reflects the monthly payments, but in December, what the IRS is going to do is show the total six months worth of payments that a taxpayer received. So what we're trying to do is proactively 
avoid this problem. We're also using working with IT to see if um, we can program something to do the reconciliation rather than manual review. So good news lessons learned from the last cycle. Uh, the bad news, the last cycle was very painful. So I have my fingers crossed it will be better. But my bigger concern is at the end of the year, the majority of the returns, you know, you may have less than a million returns carry over from one year to the other. I'm concerned at this point that we're looking at, if you include the, um, some of the correspondence and amended returns, we're probably closer to 19 million returns currently. And we're at the end of October. And this doesn't include the last two weeks of the filing period on those who filed on extended. So I suspect you're going to have a lot more returns coming in. So I don't think that number is going to go down fast enough by December 31st. And that really concerns me. Because the same people who are working on these are going to be working on the new returns being filed. I'm going to ask you one last question, if that's okay, which is we had kind of discussed this in a pre-interview about the contrast between the IRS commissioner's five-year term, which is effectively a four-year term because Congress goofed around for a year before Mr. Reddick was approved, and then the term of the national taxpayer advocate, which is indefinite could be considered beneficial. It could be considered a contrast of questions. I wonder what your thoughts are on that contrast between the IRS commissioner's statutory five-year term and the NTA's effectively indefinite term. Yeah, in my opinion, and um, this actually came up when I was uh, interviewing with Secretary Mnuchin, but I believe, you know, if you weigh the pros and cons, I think it should be a term position. But I would suggest that they did the term position that you overlap commissioners, that you don't come in with one commissioner and go out with one commissioner, that they, um, you know, try and have it so you overlap both the commissioner's time frame. So I'm happy to tell you what I think advantage and disadvantage is, but, um, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, if you step back and look at the position I do think you might be able to attract a different set of qualified individuals if they realize this is not a long-time commitment to go to the IRS. That, um, and I also think sometimes all of us, a deadline makes you work faster. So I do think if someone comes in for a set period of time, you can just pick five years, whatever the time period is, you have a finite period of time to accomplish your mission or accomplish your goals or your vision. And I do think knowing that you do have sort of that exit plan you know, might help, um, you know, move things along. I also think it kind of introduces a new group dynamic to both the TAS executive as well as the IRS executive. Um, sometimes, you know, you know, we look at any organization, when you have leaders who have been around for a long time, there tends to be the perception, not necessarily the reality, but you know, either favoritism or other things. So I think every time you bring in new people and you change the dynamic, I think that leads for more open dialogue and, and more change. So I do think there's a lot of pluses. Um, also, if you have a date, uh, maybe they could hire the next person before the first one leaves. So maybe that would be helpful. But there is some downside. I think, you know, we all realize that to time and effort in identifying, attracting, and hiring people, I mean, it takes some work. So if you have to do that every hypothetical five years, you know, there, there are some times. And then you could also have the, you lose that perfect gem, the person that really brings the right benefit um, to the position that after five years would have to leave. So, I mean, that is a downside. But I do think preserving the independence 
of the role is very important. So I think having an NTA come in for a shorter period of time, I think it really keeps that independence. There's, there's no, you don't have Stockholm syndrome. You don't become one of them or you don't come one against. I mean, you really, you have your vision, you have your goal, you have your mission, you get in, you get out. So I, I think as a practical matter, um, it's hard on any organization anytime a new leader leaves or joins because um, it takes them a time to get up to speed, learn the organization. But I think at the end of the day with the right leader, it'll turn around quick. And I do think infusing kind of a different set of blood and experience um, than the prior one would be a good thing for the organization. Perhaps we can get people talking. Either way, thank you very much, Ms. Collins, for taking your time for us here on Tax Notes Talk. Thanks, Bill. Now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Note State, Billy Hamilton examines the complexity of state tax laws governing the taxation of Halloween-related products. Kyle Richard examines the tax-exempt bond and low-income housing provisions in the proposed Build Back Better Act. In Tax Notes International, Mindy Hersfeld explores what the United States stands to gain or lose under the recent OECD agreement on international taxation. Charlotte Tolman and Michael Molinars explain the conditional withholding tax regime of the Netherlands and its implications for hybrid entities. In Featured Analysis, Nana Armasarfo looks at how specific country and regional requests influence the OECD-inclusive framework's two-pillar package. On the opinions page, Robert Goulder and Joseph Thorndike discuss envy and what it might mean for tax policy, all in five minutes. Carrie Brandon Elliott looks at how the discussion of tax and non-fungible tokens goes beyond gain income. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here's Tax Notes Federal Editor-in-Chief Ariel Greenblum. Thanks, Paige. I'm here with David Hazen, professor at the University of Florida, Levin College of Law, to discuss his recent Tax Notes Federal piece titled, Three Cheers for Proposed Changes to Partnership Debt Basis Allocation Rules. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks very much for having me. To begin, could you give us a brief overview of your article? Sure. I was reviewing the proposals coming out of the Senate Finance Committee with special interest in the partnership provisions. And I saw uh, the proposed rules regarding the treatment of partnership liabilities. And it just so happens that I had written an article earlier this year that mostly dealt with the treatment of debt more generally, but has a, a section on the treatment of partnership liabilities. And the recommendations that I made in that article almost exactly align with the proposed Uh, language for Section 752 dealing with partnership liabilities. So I thought I would take that opportunity to kind of write up my findings, as it were, and explain the rationale a little bit in support of the proposal. Thanks. So where did the idea for the original article come from? I had been working on the treatment of uh, loan proceeds under the income tax, and still am, in fact, uh, for a while. And that was motivated by a review of the scholarship in the area, which takes a view of the nature of the loan transaction that I think is somewhat problematic. So most of the rules for the treatment of debt, the tax treatment of debt, in my view, are correct. 
with the exception of the partnership rules, of course. But the way that tax scholars and commentators have understood the underlying loan transaction is not correct, I think, and it's made those rules vulnerable to criticisms that really don't apply. And so what I did in that article was develop the view that a loan is really much more like a lease than it is like anything else. And when you conceptualize a loan as a lease, the rules for the treatment of debt or most of the rules for the tax treatment of debt make perfect sense. And what was interesting is that then Senator Wyden's committee put out its proposal for the partnership tax rules. And that proposal closely follows the suggestions I made in that article about the partnership tax rules and what they should be. That's one area in which existing law is, in my view, not correct. And Senator Wyden's proposal, in my view, more or less gets it right. Before we let you go, where can listeners find you online? I guess the best place to find me online is at Twitter. <laughs> and I'm, uh, my handle is at David underscore Hazen, H-A-S-E-N. You also, of course, can go to my webpage, which is maintained by the University of Florida. And if you just search for my name and the University of Florida, that will come up. Also, of course, if uh, listeners want to email me, they can david.hazen at law.ufl.edu. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, David. Thanks very much for having me. You can find David's article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Analysts, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy in tax notes. Again, that's Tax Analysts with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. For the last few months, frequent guest of the podcast, Tax Notes legal reporter Ryan Finley, and I have been working on something special. And now we're ready to show it to everyone. We designed the Tax Notes Transfer Pricing Center as a one-stop shop for transfer pricing news, rules, and guidance from the OECD, US, UN, and around the world. On the OECD page, you'll find a comprehensive topic index that will take you directly to the OECD guidelines section you're looking for. On the US page, you'll find a digest of important court cases with summaries and links to key documents and related cases. And while you're looking around, check out the OECD US comparison table to quickly reference related topics. And everywhere you go in the Tax Notes Transfer Pricing Center, you'll find convenient links to news and commentary from all of the talented writers here at Tax Notes, Ryan Finley very much included. To check it out today, go to taxnotes.com slash transfer pricing. That's taxnotes.com slash transfer pricing. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.